Welcome to this podcast from the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, copyright and choreography. Clint Hanna and Stephanie Krasnov of the City Bar's Entertainment Law Committee speak with Professor Deborah Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina School of Law and Amy Lehman of Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here are Clint Hanna and Stephanie Krasnov. You know that one person who's always on the dance floor, first one on, last one off, usually dripping in sweat? Clint, are you are you talking about yourself? A star has to shine. This is true. Shining is allowed, but stealing it's not. What do you what are you ta- all of my moves are originals. Okay, I know you may have had a lot of free time during lockdown to, you know, work on your dance skills, but what about that choreographed dance I saw you do circa 2016 during law school? Okay, okay, Stephanie, you know, well, I'm sure everybody wants to hear about my absolutely step-perfect single ladies (laughs) choreography from law school and, you know, what that has anything to do with the law itself, we should probably introduce ourselves first. I agree. Great idea. My name is Stephanie Krasnov, and I'm a graduate of UNC Law, practicing law here in the great city of New York. I've worked in the music, film, and media world throughout my career, and I'm very excited to be representing the Entertainment Law Committee on this podcast with my friend and colleague, Mr. Clinton Hanna. Like Stephanie, uh, my name is Clint Hanna. I'm also a graduate of UNC Law, a practicing attorney here in New York City, and a member of the Entertainment Law Committee. I've been fortunate enough to work in theater law, which I guess helps make up for my lack of a singing voice. So it's clear. We're both lawyers, and I know we both love to dance, but what on earth do these two things have to do with one another? You mean outside of both dancers and lawyers really priding themselves on rhythm above all else? Of course, there's that. But also, Clint, it's because there may actually be a way for you to legally protect and own those moves, and that kind of protection could afford you a lot of rights. Absolutely. You know, as a general statement, most people have heard of copyright law, or they've seen that little circle C icon. But what fewer people know, even many attorneys, is how complex that law is and what can or can't be copyrighted. Exactly. It still trips me up sometimes. So to help us get into how complicated copyright law is and how it intersects with choreography, we would like to introduce our amazing guests on this podcast, Amy Lehman of the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts and Professor Deborah Gerhardt from the University of North Carolina School of Law. Our first guest is an absolute rock star of an attorney and human. She's the Director of Legal Services at Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, Amy Lehman. Amy comes to the practice of law after having a long career as a professional ballet dancer. She then returned to school to get her bachelor's degree in theater history and dramatic literature from NYU. She studied copyright, trademark, and media law at the University of Michigan Law School. She was also president of the Entertainment, Media, and Arts Law Students Association. Prior to joining Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, Amy practiced in New York as a commercial litigator, also advising clients in nonprofit corporate compliance. She is a trained mediator and is on the panel of mediators assigned to resolve cases for the Southern District of New York. Amy is a fellow member of the Entertainment Law Committee of the New York City Bar Association and was selected to Super Lawyers Rising Stars 2014, 16, and 17, and New York Metro Super Lawyers 2018 through 2020. How are you doing today, Amy? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Clint. You make everything I do sound so exciting the way you speak. I, I mean, I'm, I'm simply reading facts. Everything exciting <laughs> is coming from you. That's, that's nothing but me reading factual statements. Awesome. And I am honored to introduce my favorite law professor of all time, Professor Deborah Gerhardt. She's the reason I attended UNC Law, and she continues to be a friend and mentor to me to this day. Deborah joined the UNC Law faculty in 2009 and currently serves as a chaired professor. She specializes in intellectual property law with a particular focus on the intersection of law and creativity. 
I took every class Deborah taught while I, I was at UNC, and she currently teaches arts entrepreneurship, art law, copyright law, trademark law, and she has written many influential essays and articles on copyright law, trademark law, and entrepreneurship, and her work has appeared in the Notre Dame Law Review, the Journal of the Copyright Society, and Slate. Prior to joining the faculty at UNC, Deborah clerked for the Honorable Judge John M. Manos in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Ohio and practiced in the intellectual property section at Jones Day in Cleveland, Ohio. She earned her undergraduate degree from Duke University and her JD degree cum laude from Case Western Reserve School of Law, where she was the executive notes editor of the Law Review. Deborah, welcome. Thank you. I am so grateful and honored to get a chance to talk about copyright law and the arts with you all this morning. No, we're, we're excited to have you. And I think we should probably start at the very basics, you know, and, and we have a lot of interesting stuff to dive into. But Amy, you're a former professional dancer. Let's let's try to set the landscape for people who aren't, you know, as familiar with this world. I think generally speaking, how would a choreographer come up with or create a work of choreography? Well, you know, I think that's an amazing question to ask. And to be honest, I don't consider myself a choreographer because I didn't have that kind of vision. And you know, I think all dancers in their training, and I'm coming from the perspective of, of ballet, which is also different from all of the other forms of dance, but from my um, experience, um, working with choreographers and also in training, you're sort of always tasked with um, creating something. As a child, you're, you're asked to create something just to sort of test your creativity. But, you know, when working with choreographers, they all work very differently. Some sit down with the music and they envision you know the work in their heads by listening to the music others you know are inspired by art or by other you know other creative forms um and you know or by you know past works um and often they're inspired by the dancers they're working with in the room so there's a lot of different elements to it and every choreographer is different and, you know, you said you don't consider yourself a choreographer, but someone could be both a dancer and a choreographer. There there can be overlap there. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yes. And, and often they are. In fact, most of the time, I think it's very rare to find a choreographer who hasn't danced. They wouldn't have the vocabulary to create the work if they hadn't studied dance, at least. And, you know, they might not have gone on to have a professional career as a performer, but they, they have the, the background and the training. Um, and in fact, the choreographers, the ones that I know personally all dance professionally and, but their vision as choreographers was very clear from a young age that that was something more than just wanting to perform other people's works. They had something more to offer. Great. Very cool. Deborah, now that Amy has helped us understand how artists might create their choreography, why might a copyright be important for a choreographer? For, it, it's an excellent question, Stephanie. The reason why copyright protection is important is because it is a way for a person who creates a dance to protect the integrity of their work and to protect the economic value of their work. So if one, one reason why it's so important in terms of economic value is that if you take specific steps to register to timely register the original expression you've put into creating a dance then let's imagine for example you've you've created that dance for a broadway musical the next time another company wants to perform that broadway musical then they will have to go to you and pay a license or suffer the consequences so it gives you a chance to protect both the economic, the potential economic value to you of the work, but also to protect the integrity of the work. Because if you have a particular vision for a particular dance that you have created, you not only own the exclusive right to perform the dance, you also own the exclusive right to make changes to it. And in this way, um, choreographers can protect not just the ability for their work to be performed, but also uh, the ability of their work to be altered and changed. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. And so Amy, as Clint mentioned, you are a former professional dancer. 
In your experience working with choreographers and dancers, how often did legal concerns or conversations arise? Or, and if so, you know, what kind of conversations were they? Well, you know, as a dancer working in a ballet company, um, those conversations never arise. Dancers are not um, encouraged to talk and ask questions and, and contribute to that conversation. Um, except in my case, in one instance, I was dancing with a company where the choreographer uh, who was the director of the company, um, and that's a whole issue that we're going to talk about later, but that, that director um, was creating a piece, and it was a really beautiful, interesting piece with fantastic concept and music, and, and he brought all of that to the table. Um, but when we got into the room to learn the choreography, there really wasn't any choreography. He basically asked us to move and create movement, which he then decided which things would fit and which wouldn't. And, you know, he sort of constructed it, but the dancers really contributed to that choreography and contributed to that creation. And at that time, two of the dancers who really put most of that work in um, realized it, like the conversation arose and it was, it was unusual because most of the time people won't say anything. So in that case, it was quite amazing to me being, you know, sort of mid-career in my dance life to see this happen and to see the dancers actually stand up and say, we want credit for this. And in the end, of course, didn't get any credit for it. But, um, but they stood up and made, made themselves known that they felt like they were being exploited that way. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't change the outcome, but, but I had never encountered that before. And that was the first time that I had, had experienced that. Okay. Wow. That's a really interesting anecdote. And as you've moved from being a professional dancer to into a role working in the legal field with artists, do artists tend to see copyright as an offensive or defensive issue? And, you know, this kind of harkens back to being in law school. There's that concept of, you know, legal protections being a sword or a shield and sometimes both. And so how would you advise or what are your opinions on copyright and choreography in that sense? Yeah. Um well, you know, it's very interesting because, again, going back to the sort of the way we're trained not to assert our rights um, as artists and performers. And I see that now as an attorney. And in fact, one of the reasons I became an attorney was that I found myself in a position where I needed to I needed help and I couldn't get it. Um, and so fast forward 100 years, I'm now here. <laughs> but um, it seems that in in uh, working with artists. Um, but we don't get a lot of dancers coming to us, choreographers some, um, and it's about 50-50 in terms of uh, generally artists will come to us, choreographers will come to us with concerns about whether they're infringing on someone else's rights. If it's in film, like mostly when they're creating something, in, you know, sort of in the moment and live, it's, it's going to be original work. Um, and so that won't really be an issue, but... Um, you know, people don't come to us with cons defensive concerns unless they're being co approached with a demand letter or a lawsuit, usually. Mm -hmm. um, if someone's suing them for infringement, then they're concerned about the defense. Um, in terms of their protecting their own work, uh, again, since most people haven't really been aware that that's something they should do, uh, they become more concerned if they recognize someone is infringing on them. And then they come to us going, wait a minute, I should. how do I protect myself? So unfortunately, it's a lot of uh, reflexive, responsive, uh, you know, reaction instead of sort of protection that comes in advance of needing it. Like, but but that's because of the educational system that doesn't train any kind of artists, but certainly not dancers and choreographers, about their rights in advance. Right. For sure. And it's interesting because I know we will get into the history of the Copyright Act and when choreography was added, but it'll be interesting to see if there's any change, you know, in decades to come just because choreography wasn't allowed to be copyrighted really until almost 1980. So, and it's 2020 now. So it'll be interesting to see if that changes, you know, if education increases. So we've touched on the benefits of artists knowing about copywriting their work and also what the you know, factual landscape is around copywriting of the work. But I think for both our legal practitioners listening and artists, let's get to sort of the bare minimum 
questions about copyright law and about dance. And Deborah and Amy, I think both of you might have an interesting opinion, especially on the second uh, part of this question, but there are two requirements for something to be copyrightable. Can you briefly explain what those are? And then perhaps most importantly, tell us why choreography could qualify for copyright protection? Well, there are two factors, as you mentioned, Clint. I'm so grateful you remember that from when you studied copyright law with me. I had a great, are- I had a great professor. <laughs> Apparently so. I'm, I'm excited to hear that. Anyway, yes. So a work in order to be protected by copyright needs to be fixed in some sort of tangible medium, and it needs to be original. Now, what does it mean to be fixed? It means that it is put into some stable form, maybe written down with the specific choreographic notation or videotaped, or even a series of photographs can be taken to document different dance moves that might create um, choreography. The other really important thing that has to be present is this idea of a work being original. And this has really created a lot of problems for people trying to protect dances more recently. So it's a really interesting piece of this. I think sometimes the fixation piece is easier to get to get right and to understand how to do. Um, but originality for in copyright law means that you didn't copy the dance from somebody else and you added some sort of creative expression. So if you've if you've really just reused a dance that everybody has been or a series of movements that everybody's been doing for years and years that is not something you originally created so that would fail the originality test and then there has to be sufficient creative input and we know that in copyright law that bar is supposed to be low But for dance, what we're seeing is that in order to exceed that originality bar, it's got to, it's a murky line, but we know it's probably got to be at least more than three moves. Would you agree with that, Amy? Is that how you're reading the tea leaves here? Uh, Yes, I agree, because there is this question of, of, you know, how much of a sequence of moves is sufficient, you know, how many... um, steps and how do you identify steps and again in in ballet it's very easy to identify steps they all have names it comes from sort of like the pedagogy of dance the names of the steps are have french names and they're all very clear what they are so you can string those moves together and you can actually write out what those are in so many other dance forms it's much more difficult to do that because you don't have that kind of structure that goes back 150 years so um you know, what is a sequence of moves when you have to identify what is one move um, in that sequence? So so it is murky for a lot of forms of dance. It's very murky and, and challenging. Deborah, one one clarification I'd like to make that, you know, I think people often misunderstand in, in discussing copyright protection. Could you clarify for our listeners, if I have something fixed um, and I have that, you know, creativity required, do I have to register my dance in order to receive copyright protection? So you do not. But I want everybody to take away from this podcast the message that you're going to be in a much stronger position if you do. So the first part, ever since the law was changed in 1976, you used to have to jump through all these formality hoops, put a copyright notice on and publish with that notice to get protected. So for older works, yes, you needed to do that. And that's where some of the misperception comes from. But now the federal law has changed. And the moment you fix something in that tangible medium of expression, you write that dance down, you record it, it is like magic federal copyright fair use dust falls on you, right? It's like copyright fairy dust sparkling all over you and you get these really strong, awesome federal rights. But so you can you can protect it without doing anything other than writing it down. But what you still need to do if you really want to protect the economic value is register it, 
with the United States Copyright Office within three months of first publishing the work. Okay. It's very easy to register a work. You go to www.copyright.gov. You, you fill out a two-page form. It is not difficult. And then and you pay a small fee. It's probably going to be somewhere between $35 and $55. And you can get your registration. And once you have that, if somebody takes your dance and they put it in a big film or in a big video game or in an advertisement and they don't pay you, you can get statutory damages. That means you can get up to $150,000 without proving that you were harmed. And the bad guys have to pay your lawyer. So it is an incredibly strong economic value that you can get. And all you need to do to get that value is to make sure that before you share that dance with the world, or within three months of publishing and essentially sharing it with the world, you are registering it with the U.S. Copyright Office. Um, I just want our listeners to know there's dust, fairy dust that just came down throughout the whole video. It was really beautiful when Deborah said that. Um, but also, Amy, I wanted to clarify with you. I think that there's a specific form of notation that dancers use to write down their work. And I, I you'll tell me what the name is of it. Yeah. But I know that in listening, I was partially, Clint and I were partially inspired to do this podcast based off an NPR article um, that we heard. and. I, in it, the choreographer Joel Knight said that his choreography for single ladies was 40 pages long. So what is that called? Well, you know, that's really interesting. I suspect, well, first I wanted to just comment on something that uh, Deborah said, which was talking about um, publishing the work. And I'd like to get into sort of more of a definition of that in a minute, but, um, and a conversation about that because the audience might not know exactly what that means, but um, although she did allude to it. So anyway, the question you just asked me was, um, what would the notation have been in terms of what his notation would have been? I'm not so sure because everybody is capable of creating their own shorthand, whatever they might use that they understand what that notation means so that they can recreate their work. Um, and that happens all the time. People create their own shorthand. But the formal shorthands, there's two specific ones that are actually taught in colleges and taught around the world. One is Laban notation and one is Banesh notation. And these are old forms which have kind of fallen out of favor since film and videotape uh, became available. So nobody, you know, generally has the ability to read or write down Labano or Banesh. You need some a specialist to do that. So you might have in a big ballet company, uh, you know, someone sitting with the choreographer taking down this in this notation, the choreography as they said it, but you also have videotape, which is much easier. And everybody can watch <laughs> videotape and learn the dance from that. And in fact, most of my career, I learned either live in the room from the choreographer or from the videotape. And so I never, ever even saw a Laban notation or a Banesh notation myself. Uh, so it's not, it's more of an academic okay. um, tool that's handy and useful for for um, documenting and sort of uh, when you have a historical record um, that those things come in handy so but they exist and I, but I suspect that, that that the person you're talking about that choreographer did not use those notes okay yeah. interesting yeah and did you want to touch on something about publishing how it yeah. work becomes published yeah i wanted to ask deborah to uh give us a definition of publishing <laughs> <laughs> i am so happy to do that thank you for bringing up one of my favorite copyright topics um, and truly one of my missions in life is to help people better understand this principle so it's incredibly interesting uh the, I, the definition of publication in copyright law is very strange and can be counterintuitive. And so we're just going to have to accept that and take a little copyright leap of faith together. Copyright law came from truly the world, the word of the world of text. 
So it's always an odd fit with performative arts like dance choreography. So the idea of publication came from the idea of printing copies of books and distributing them. So sending out a written copy of something that you could view with your eyes. That was where this idea of publication came from. So as the definition in the law matured and developed, an exception developed, which is that mere display or performance of a work did not constitute publication. So one can perform a dance every night at a Broadway theater or at a major dance hall, and not publish a work. But if you disseminate some sort of tangible copy of the work, and that could include a film, a videotape, then that would count as publication. So let's imagine in the situation that Amy was illustrating that Maybe there is somebody there, or maybe not, doing that classic academic form of notation, but more typically there will be a video of it. And then let's say somebody posts that video on the internet. Boom, you have publication because you have a tangible copy in the form of that video that you can see and you can re- you can figure out what that dance was from seeing again. That's the idea. There is some tangible item out there that fixes the dance so you can in the future see what it is. It's not just a mere performance that is not recorded that nobody can ever see. That wouldn't count, but making the videotape of the performance that would and and distributing that would count as publication. So can I ask, um, in terms of distributing, what if they make a, a recording for archival purposes for the company? Um, and they use it to teach the next year's dancers that piece. At what point would then it, it then be considered published? Excellent, excellent question. Pu- the The question of publication is whether or not truly the public has access to that videotape. So let's imagine a situation where you make the videotape and it truly is made for archival purposes, that it is kept, and I know theaters often do this of their uh, theatrical productions where they will make really an archival that's just really to uh, record the history of of the productions at the theater, but is not meant to ever be seen by anybody and certainly is not distributed. That would not count as publication because although the copy is made, it is not distributed in any way that the public could have access to it. So the situation you you proposed where you might use it for teaching creates a different question. Because if the students had access to that videotape and could keep the videotape for their reference and potentially distribute it, that would constitute publication. But if we are just showing, if if we are showing it to students in a class and they don't actually have access to the to the tape, they're just seeing it, it's not really a disclosure to the public. So again, really the critical question for publication is, does the public have access to that videotape, right? If you control the distribution, even if it is a little bit of a distribution, if you control it, so that nobody really can publicly get their hands on it, that's not publication. And to ask a follow-up question based off that, Deborah, does the publication have to be by the copyright owner? So I ask that in the sense that, you know, I'm walking through Times Square and I see a performer out there, I record it, post it on Instagram. Is that publication? Great question. If the person puts up a sign as they're performing and says, no recording allowed, mm-hmm. and you record anyway, <laughs> that is an unauthorized recording, and that generally does not count as publication. But if you're out there in the public and you're letting everybody make recordings of you, that really is, it w- is you might not be saying out loud that you're authorizing mm-hmm. it, but standing in a public place and permitting everybody around you, and you see them recording, right? That would certainly 
be much more likely to count as publication. There have been situations, for example, with public sculpture, that when a public sculpture is out there in a public square, I'm thinking of the the Chicago, the big monumental Chicago sculpture in in, um, downtown Chicago, I think it's in Daly Plaza, that because it because the sculpture was available to the public to photograph, that was considered publication, even though technically the distribution wasn't made by the copyright owner. What wouldn't count as publication is a pirated distribution. Right. The idea is that you don't you don't punish the copyright owner because there is a thief out there. But if they permit access and encourage it, yes, that would count. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Um, And so I'm going to now jump back to, you had mentioned the Copyright Act. And so for all the legal historians out there, the 1978 Copyright Act added choreographic works, which previously was not explicitly mentioned in the Copyright Act. So could you give us a brief history of how we got to include choreographic works and why this was necessary, um, why this addition was necessary for, um, for artists? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. So when in the in the early years of our nation, protection for copyright was deemed really important. And the founders who wrote the Constitution mentioned copyright protection in the U.S. Constitution and wrote the very first copyright statute. But they remember what I said about how copyright history started in text? The very first works that were covered were books, maps, and charts, all things written down. And the way federal copyright law has always worked is that if an item is not mentioned in the federal statute, it's not protected. So little by little, as Congress recognized there were other areas that would benefit from copyright protection, they added things in. And dramatic works were added in 1856. Now, we might think of dance as a dramatic work, but unfortunately, the words dramatic work in the copyright statute were interpreted rather narrowly. And dances, even if they were very expressive and very had tons of originality, super creative, were not protected unless they were found to be dramatic in the sense of telling a story. So if the dance did not have characters, if it didn't have a plot, if it was simply just visually inventive, that was not sufficient. And so some truly amazing artistic works did not get, even though they had great artistic value, they were not found to be protected by copyright within that definition of dramatic work. And that was a problem for people who wanted to protect choreographic works. And so the law was changed in 1976. And beginning when that law became effective on January 1st, 1978, there is now the category of choreographic works. And so anything that falls within the copyright definition of choreographic works and pantomimes was another one that was added Those are now right there in the statute and we know they are protected. So now really the question becomes, okay, what is a choreographic work that the Copyright Office and the courts will recognize as meriting protection? And what does that mean for any works created prior to 1978? Are they out of luck or? It may mean that they're out of luck. You can try to somehow shoehorn them into other areas, but it it has not been a great success story. So for example, if they were notated in text and somebody stole somebody copied that text, you may be able to try to argue that they have copied a textual work rather than a, a, a work of choreography and, and shoehorn it into another category if you can. I think that's really, but that, that was hard and it didn't work for a, a, quite a, a number of people. And that's why the statute was changed to add choreographic work. So it's, I wouldn't say it's hopeless depending on what your facts are, but it, 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 there were a lot of wonderful creative works that lost protection because they weren't able to do that. 
Right. And as we're getting into the nitty gritty here of the Copyright Act, um, I think that we forgot to mention, but could you remind our listeners, how long does copyright protection last if someone does get a work registered? It is the life of the author plus 70 years. That is the current term. So it is a nice long time. <laughs> Very nice. Um, and so moving further into the definition and when we added choreographic works, can you explain how the Copyright Office discusses social dance steps and why those don't qualify as choreographic works? Sure. So I think that the Copyright Office has what they call a compendium, which are the office's guidelines so that the decisions they make internally about whether to register copyrights are consistent. And so the people who make choices about whether or not works can be registered use this compendium. So one limitation, of course, that we discussed previously is originality. The dance has to come from an original artist, a choreographer, not just be really a remix of social dance steps that we all know, because if it were, it wouldn't be original. And for that reason, the compendium says social dance steps are not protected. Okay. And I think just for our listeners, so they can get a visual of what we mean by social dance steps, does anybody have any they want to throw out there? I have a favorite. That's the Carlton, which <laughs> as we've seen for many tribes could not be registered. Any other ones that we can think of? Perhaps the waltz, just a simple three-step pattern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I, I'm thinking in terms of like swing dance and although that's a social dance, it's all there's also a performance of that and that might, you know, flip over into a performative choreographed dance that can be copyrighted. But mm -hmm. generally improvisational dances are not going to be choreographable because it's improv. Right. I'm thinking of my mom being the disco queen. She would have to say the hustle. <laughs> That's awesome. that I love that there. you're honoring your mom in that way, Stephanie, the hustle. <laughs> I hearken um, to that and, era as well. Could I just mention that Amy raised a really important point about performance as distinguished from choreography, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that even if choreography is not protected, there may be some creativity in a particular performance that could be protected by copyright. Definitely. Um, and you did mention previously this compendium from the Copyright Office, and I was reading through that before our podcast. And I do want to point out a fun fact I found that, you know, they state specifically that the choreographic works must be intended for execution by humans only. So no machines or animals. Sorry, Clint, if you've taught your dog Banner any dances, you cannot copyright those. You know, I, I do art for art's sake alone. I'm saddened <laughs> to hear that, that there will not be legal protection. <laughs> the definition that they have in the compendium of choreography is not super helpful in my mind. So here is what here is what how they define the type of work that can be protected. They say that a dance is a static and kinetic succession of bodily movements in certain rhythmic and spatial relationships and in relation to time and space. Choreography is the composition and arrangement of a related series of dance movements and patterns organized into a coherent whole. Choreography is not synonymous with dance. I think that's a really interesting point that, that they're really making it very clear that not all dances will be protected. And then they go on to explain what is not protected. They say the choreography is a discrete subset of dance that encompasses certain types of compositional dances and does not include social dance steps and simple routines. So we talked about social dance steps, but I'd be really curious to hear what you all think about this other exception, a simple routine. What would be a simple routine that would be excluded? So again, I'm thinking in imagine you're in a in a dance class of any type whether it's at a gym or in a ballet class there are steps that are given in you know in sequence to be performed by the people in the class and i think that might be what they're getting at is that you're not going to see 
the combinations that are used in those classes um, being, being uh, registered for copyright. Even though I can imagine that I actually do know that for um, examination purposes, certain um, like techniques in ballet have exam uh, sequences that are the same forever. Uh, the exercises go in order, the, same, the exercises stay the same every year, the students take them, they perform them for the examiners, and they never change. And I can see how that might be something that would want to be copyrighted, is that this is the Vaganova level three exam series. And I suppose it might, there might be other ways to get it in as copyrightable as a public, maybe it could be written down and published in another way. Um, but for the purpose of dancing, it wouldn't be considered choreography. Mm -hmm. I think that's might tie into Professor Gearhart why we can't register a yoga class because they're simple poses and often they're a flow. Um, and so those have never been able to see copyright registration successfully. Yes, it's interesting. I the there was a court that looked at the series of poses in the the Bikram uh, mm -hmm. yoga series has a very set series of poses that's always conducted in a hot room over an, I believe a 90 minute period and it's interesting the court actually said in that case that they wouldn't let the the creator of the series shoehorn this into choreography because really yoga is considered a healing art and the purpose is not for as the compendium explains this certain rhythmic and spatial relationships that are related to any kind of rhythmic movement it's more a a series that's designed to help your body improve health help help your mind and that was really interesting because I guess if the intention is not artistic, if the intention is more to help your mind, functional mind kind of. well, right. And if the functional aspect, yeah, it was, they cut their, their exceptions to copyright law where you can't get protection for things that are like a method of operation or a way of doing things. And it was strangely put under that aspect. But you have to wonder if the case would have come out differently if the series of poses was instead for some sort of artistic purpose. Right. Hmm. Interesting. I'm thinking of like 305 Fitness, uh, Clint, and I know you like to do those kind of dance cardio classes, which in a sense, it's a performance and it's a workout. I don't know how a court would rule on that. That sets up perfectly for something, you know, we've discussed sort of the the practical landscape of dance and we've given a lot of interesting history, but I can already hear them screaming out, our litigators listening, and I love them for it, but they're screaming, you know, what do the courts say? What have the courts said? And as much as they, they might love the history, they might be excited to hear about it, they're like, you know, let me hear the cases. So I'm curious for, you know, either of you, do you think there's any seminal cases on, on this topic you'd like to discuss or, or any cases you think that would contribute to our overall conversation or for any litigators to, you know, do some additional research afterwards if, if they're curious and learning more? So I, I'm going to jump in because I think uh, Deborah will have more to say on this subject than I have just because I haven't litigated any choreographic cases in my, in my litigation career. But, but the Martha Graham case, was actually just before I went to law school. And, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about it at the time. And of course, I was interested in it. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing about that case is it's not really about uh, whether or not the choreography was copyrightable. It was about who owned it. And that's another subject that I'd like to get into in a little bit. And I'll probably just, you know, talk about it here, um, is that for choreographers, it's incredibly important to, to establish the ownership. And that happens um, not just by registering the copyright, but it happens before you do that in establishing the working relationship with how you're hired to do the work. Um, you know, what's your relationship with the dance company that you're creating, the dancers that you're creating it on and the dance company you're doing working it for, whether you're an employee of that organization or a guest choreographer, or if you're hired as an independent contractor, or if it's a work for hire, there are all these different 
elements that play into where does the intellectual property land? And that case ultimately came down to the executive director who ended up being Martha Graham's um, executor of her estate, uh, claiming ownership for all of this work that the, the school for which she created a lot of the works believed they owned it because they believed that she had done it in her capacity as the you know choreographer for the school and 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 uh, you know head of the school, and so it was a long like nine year litigation, um, which ultimately came down. I think some of the pieces ended up being owned by the school and some being owned by this executor, and and then you know what is he going to do with them? Like the other the other part is like who benefits. If he owns those, if you in in the name of the estate, then he can license them out to whoever he chooses to. But it's the school and the company that have the ability to maintain the quality and the style and the and the integrity of the works. And so it's really more advantageous and more beneficial for them to have ownership of them. I don't know now we're you know 18, 19 years later. Um, I don't know. Uh, where it has all played out in the end. I'm sure there was some settlement that happened and some settling that went on over some of those works. But but it's a very interesting question. And um, I think, Clint, you're going to ask me a little bit later about other issues. And this, this sort of falls into that category of uh, that I'll, that I'll um, continue on. But I think Deborah probably has some other cases to raise. Sure. Well, let me just for first piggyback on what Amy said that I have to say that Martha Graham, the series of cases involving the Martha Graham dances are among the most significant litigation that we have about choreography. And I agree, the ownership issues that those cases raise are very, very significant cautionary tales. And it's so important for anybody litigating in this area or anybody who does any type of contract work in this area to take a look at those because or to really understand the work for hire doctrine and copyright law because no no client is happy when they have to engage in protracted litigation over a significant asset and that kind of litigation can very easily be avoided by straightening out the ownership issues from the beginning. So it's a terrific cautionary tale and a terrific lesson in having the hard conversation about as Amy said, where the IP will land. As you know, I have this personal affection for the copyright publication doctrine, so I must mention that publication was also an issue in the Martha Graham case. And interestingly, the court did the right thing. They took the time to very carefully look at the facts and figure out whether some of these works were published without a copyright notice. Because before... 1978, if a work was published without a copyright notice, it immediately went into the public domain. You didn't get that magical fairy dust. It started to fall, but the moment you published it without a copyright notice, it was like, you know, this big shield or this big umbrella prevented you from getting from getting the benefits. So there were some dances at issue in that litigation that weren't didn't end up being owned by anybody at all. They were found to be published with no notice before January 1st, 1978, and they're in the public domain. Nobody has to pay anybody or ask any questions. So that is another great lesson from that case. If there is a 20th century work and you have evidence that it was published, distributed in some sort of videotape or some sort of physical copy without a copyright notice, you have a super strong argument that that work is in the public domain and you shouldn't have to pay anybody to use it. I think more recently, there's been a lot of discussion about some the Fortnite cases, some simple dance steps that have appeared in video games. Uh, and I think a big part of the reason that people brought these claims is because in the video games, it was as though they were referencing a some sort of celebrity or some sort of person that had made these dance, dance steps famous. And generally, several of these cases were found not to state a copyright claim because the dances were just too short, that three steps was not enough. And then... 
I think some of these celebrities got very frustrated and they tried to bring a claim, basically that, that like a trademark claim that this, that they're copying their move, which is like their trademark move. And interestingly, court said that, no, you can't protect that either, even though trademark law normally would, because when copyright puts something in the public domain and says that something cannot be protected, you can't use another IP regime to try to regain that protection. So it's there's some interesting channeling the courts are doing, saying that when copyright puts something in the public domain, you can't take it back in this other way. But I don't know. I think that's something that really could be explored because there's plenty of, of content that's not protected by copyright that is protected by trademark. So stay tuned. I'm not sure that that kind of thinking is going to hold up ultimately. And Deborah, a lot of these dances from the Fortnite cases, it, it, it wasn't a lack of people knowing where they were from. For example, I know the one that comes to my mind first is what I think we all affectionately refer to as the Carlton, Alfonso Ribera's character from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, a dance that I would do perfectly again if this wasn't an audio format. But, you know, it, it wasn't an issue, the court said, like you said, of them not knowing where the dances were from. A lot of these, if they did not call them out directly, were very clear references to well-established dances, right? It, it, it is more of that issue of the public domain and, and the copyright trademark intersection, so to speak, rather than, you know, the defendant claiming that, oh, this wasn't this person's actual dance. This was, you know, just something we found out of, you know, thin air. Yeah. And to piggyback off of that as well, Clint, I was doing a little bit of uh, background research again last night, and the Supreme Court made a decision in 2019 in the Fourth Estate Public Benefit Corp versus WallStreet.com, and it changed the traditional understanding of process and copyright suits. So most of these lawsuits that were filed, including the one by Alfonso Ribeiro and, you know, there's also one from Terrence to Millie Ferguson. Those are kind of on hold right now until, if and until they receive copyright registration. So it'll be interesting to see if any of those pick back up or if they, as Deborah alluded to, you know, take a different course of action. All right. So moving on from our brief stint in litigation, um, Amy, we've established why choreography can be protected and the reasons why artists might want to do so. Are there any other reasons a choreographer might not want to copyright their dance? So this is a very interesting question and I thought about it um, a bit. Um, and I think it's, un I mean, if they don't feel like there is any risk of someone stealing their choreography, right? If they're a, a regional choreographer and they're working in a company that, you know, isn't putting their work out onto the internet and, and you know, they, they're being creative and they're, actually they're open to other people They maybe they want other people to use their work as the basis of other works um you know there may be not no urgency in registering a copyright per se they still own the copyright as Deborah mentioned but they don't necessarily need to register it because registration is really there as your tool to protect yourself from infringement if they're not really that worried about it then maybe they don't need to do that there's also um you know something that i've been thinking about in terms of you know what is actually getting copyrighted. If they're copywriting their work, they have to upload a videotape of it to the copyright office. And that is the work that gets copyrighted. But choreography is a is a fluid, it's a process. And it's, you know, many times um, a dance is choreographed and, and a choreographer will set it on a company and then they'll go and set the same piece of choreography on another dance company, but it'll they'll change the steps to accommodate the dancers in that company because every individual dancer has different talents and skills and abilities. And so they might set it in one way for one company and another way for another company, but it's still the same dance. Effectively, it's the same piece, same music, same costume, same feel, same everything, but a few of the steps might be a little different just because the dancers have different skills, right? But once you copyright it, that fixed, tangible medium version of it, that's the copyrighted entity. But it doesn't account for the fact that, well, what if the dancer, the dancer on the stage the night it was choreographed made a mistake? What if they 
you know, flipped up for a second and did the wrong step, then now the wrong step is actually part of the choreography forever that's been choreographed. So there are, there are other reasons why dance as a fluid medium isn't so suitable to the structure of, of protection. Um, so, you know, the, that might be a reason. Maybe the choreographer doesn't have a fixed version that they're happy with. You know, it may be that they haven't gotten the videotape that actually represents what they want it to look like because this dancer fell that day or that, or that dancer, you know, missed their turn and, you know, did something else to, to cover up. And so the audience doesn't know, but the choreographer knows that it's not right. So they might not actually be able to get a final version that they're happy with. So that would be a reason not to register the copyright. Um, but, you know, I think it's a, an interesting question about like how much alteration of the details can happen within the construct of a piece where it's still the same piece. Because of course the choreographer has the right to create derivatives, derivative works of their original work, but maybe every time it's set, it's a, new, it's a derivative work, you know, under the law. But according to the choreographer, it's the same work because for them, it's not, you know, changing a step here or a step here. It doesn't change the entire piece. It's just accommodating the tools that they have to put it on the stage. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting question because there are all these factors that are involved. Right. And that's part of the beauty and the challenge of choreography is that it's not a static art form like so many others as the Copyright Act was intended to originally protect. Yeah. And one final question I think I'd like to ask both of you and understanding that this is, you know, an open-ended question that could lead into a beautiful series of podcasts on, on you know, this very interesting intersection between law and art. But I'm just, you know, if both of you, if you're speaking to a client or a friend or your future self, whatever, whoever the choreographer is, I'm just, you know, what are other legal concerns a choreographer should look out for? Be that in a contract, be that just, you know, before a contract even enters the picture. So um, I'm going to jump in here because this sort of flows out of the, of the Martha Graham case in terms of my thinking in that um, the choreographer um, needs to think about the, the, the situation that they're in, in terms of setting the choreography. Let's say the choreographer is also the artistic director of a dance company, and they are hired as the artistic director of the dance company, but in their contract, it also says they're required to, to create two new pieces a season for the company. In that contract, they need to be able to say whether or not uh, those pieces belong to the company because they're doing it in the in the you know with their artistic director slash choreographer hat on, or do they want all of their work to be having them hired as an outside choreographer under a separate contract? So they're the artistic director; they make decisions about the the you know direction of the company and hiring other, uh, hiring the dancers, hiring other choreographers, keeping the company going forward. But if they are being hired to set pieces. Are they being hired as an independent contractor with a separate contract that where they maintain their ownership of their intellectual property? So that's one thing. Then let's say they're a choreographer where uh, they're a freelance choreographer, but they hire dancers to set their pieces on and maybe to perform. Maybe they have their own little performance group where they hire the same people all the time and, and they do a couple of shows a year. Uh, what's the structure under which they're hiring those dancers. Um, I have a friend who had a small company and was the choreographer for that company where he hired them as independent contractors. That's a very common um, in New York. Independent car choreographers do this all the time. I was hired as a dancer for someone like that. You get a, a flat fee, you go to rehearsal, you go and you do the performances and that's the end of it. Um, well, under New York law, the but again, the law doesn't really quite encompass what the dance world is in reality, because under New York law, uh, employees, there's a very strict sort of list of parameters for employees. And if you are uh, showing, you have to show up at a specific time, you have to use the, the sort of tools of the trade of, of the employer, you have to, um, you know, 
follow their direction, that sort of thing. Well, that very clearly describes a dancer showing up for class and rehearsal, wearing the costumes, doing the choreography they're told to do, showing up on time for performance, dancing with other people. That that environment sounds like employee under the New York under New York law. But in reality, if you're hiring freelance dancers to show up for rehearsal three times a week and do one performance, but they're still using their your costumes and they're still using, you know, your sets and your and you know the, the theater that you got the space for, they're still independent contractors in rea- in the real world. They are not your employee. But my friend who had this company had that environment, he paid his dancers. One of them went off and filed for unemployment insurance. And they ended up in, in a litigation because she was basically saying, I was an employee. Yeah, for three weeks you were rehearsing and then you did a performance. And so she was trying to get unemployment insurance under the, you know, because under New York law, these factors make you look like an employee when in reality it's it's just a, the law is bad. <laughs> you know, it doesn't fit <laughs> the reality of, of the of what happened. And so what happened is he didn't have money to pay unemployment insurance and for all of his dancers for, you know, and, and he had to shut down the company. So what you end up with is no art because, because the law doesn't fit the reality. And so um, choreographers have to think hard about, you know, if they're hiring people to work on their choreography with them, because they have to set it on bodies, they can't do it abstractly. They have to be careful about how they hire them, what they, what they do in the studio with that their that their employment contract with them it makes it very clear it's work for hire the, the dancers don't have any interest in the intellectual property that they that are participating in creating um and also be aware of the freelancers and free act that requires contracts for independent contractors as well so there's all these elements and factors again that dancers and choreographers aren't taught about learn about there's no forum for them to understand these things except for this kind of thing except for you know we teach classes at DLA on these topics but they're not learning it in school they're certainly not learning it in dance school so that's what I think about I I would just like to add that What you just described, Amy, is a situation that I'm sure replicates itself over and over again. And I'm sure lots of people listening know people or themselves have experienced or counseled a client in this situation. And one of the big messages that we can give you today is that the Volunteer Lawyers of the Arts is out there to assist artists who may be facing these challenges, but really don't have the resources to hire a lawyer. So please contact the organization. They are there and they, they are experts in this field. And all of these muddy areas of law, they can help you navigate just by making sure you are protected in a contract. Another story that you may all be familiar with is the is the story about chorus line and about how dancers not only dancers gave their life story to this show that ended up being incredibly successful and very few of them got any kind of remuneration at all from that and that is avoidable if you understand what your creative rights are and how to put into contracts language that will protect them. Contracts are not sacrosanct in the arts. They can be changed. They can be edited. They can be designed to clarify that you will have your ability to work and your creative rights protected. So please don't hesitate to bring your questions to the Volunteer Lawyer of the Arts. We are here to help you. Right. And I think I think what we're getting at here is there's so there's a lack of education for artists and their legal rights and what they can and can't do. And I found that particularly in the dramatic works. I mean, Professor Gerhard, when I worked on my project for you in law school and, and I focused on copyright for costumes and people just have no idea that that's even an option. And so it's great that we're trying to spread awareness and just let people know that there are resources available. There are rights that you can have that you might not have right now. And it's a scary thing, I think, to be in a dancer's position or a choreographer's position and trying to take advantage of those rights. It's a big step. Um, But we have 
love discussing this with everyone. And I think Deborah, do you have one more thing? I do. I just want to mention that another resource resource that may be available to artists out there are law school intellectual property and arts clinics. So check in your region. I know my school at the University of North Carolina, we have a, a intellectual property and an entrepreneurship clinic, and they help artists who can't afford legal expertise. So check the law schools in your area in addition to the volunteer lawyers for the arts. Those are two excellent ways of getting first-rate legal assistance and not have to have to make any financial outlay for it. Yes, great, definitely. And so with that, we want to give a special thank you to the New York City Bar Association and the Entertainment Law Committee for hosting this discussion today. We'd also like to, of course, thank our experts for their incredibly insightful thoughts today. A special thanks as well to Noelle Mouton, a third-year law student at the University of North Carolina School of Law, for assisting on research for this discussion. And thank you to the Bar Association's Copyright Committee for providing guidance as we were preparing the podcast. And I think now it's time to get back to what I was alluding to at the beginning. Clint, I think you owe the people more information about dancing to single ladies. Oh, and it looks like (laughs) we are out of time. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.